0: You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. All right, everyone, if you want to top off your coffee, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll get started here in just a few seconds. Well, there I was. I was not able to concentrate. My palms were clammy. I was sweating profusely. I mean, you could cut the tension in the room with a knife. The situation seemed hopeless. As I sat there on the edge of my chair, I couldn't see any way out of where I was. What am I describing? I'm describing pretty much every Sunday Viking game last year uh, that I experienced. I, uh, I mean, every, if, if you remember, like every game was so close and it didn't seem like there was a way out and then somehow they would manage to pull off 11 one-score victories. And Aliyah needed to remind me that it's just a game. Um, and if you know me for any length of time, I'm a huge Vikings fan, way too invested. I can count the number of times I've cried, uh, literally, because of a loss. Um, but we actually do face real, seemingly hopeless situations in our life. We, we, we face job loss, we face the death of a loved one, we face an irreparable relationship. I mean, consider this for a moment that all of us, each one of us in this room, are going to experience brokenness, hardship, disease, death at some point in our life. None of us are immune. But at the cross, we are reminded that we can have hope when the situation appears To be hopeless. For the criminals at the cross, hopeless is probably too light of a word, but at the cross, these criminals, at least one of them, experienced the incredible hope of Jesus. So would you please stand as we continue our our sermon series? We're gonna look at Luke chapter 23. I'm gonna read verses 39 to 43, and then we'll spend most of our time looking at verse 43 in particular. Luke chapter 23. Beginning in verse 39, it says, One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. To Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. And now as we open the scriptures, we ask that you open our heart and mind to understand your word. Bring conviction where we need stirring and bring confidence where we lack trust. Most of all, help us see the beauty of Christ in the reading and studying of your word today. Amen. The half of you may be seated. (laughs) For a first century Roman or Jewish citizen, the cross would have been the ultimate symbol of hopelessness. But as we will encounter in this passage today, Jesus' interaction with this criminal turns what was once a hopeless symbol into a place of hope. Because it is at the cross that we encounter the extraordinary hope of Jesus. In this particular verse, verse 43, we identify three characteristics of Jesus that he is the gracious and the just judge of the crucified, he is the friend of the sinner. And he's the God of the forgotten. These three identities are on display in this verse, 43. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So let's turn our attention to the first part of this statement. Where Jesus says, truly I say to you, today. Consider the scene for a moment. Earlier in that day, the criminal to whom Jesus spoke these words would have been tried at Pilate's residence on the west side of the city. You can actually see uh, the picture where Pilate's residence um, once was. He would have carried his cross north to a location just outside the west of the city where he would have been stripped naked and crucified on the side of the street, the place now marked by the Church of the, the Holy Sepulchre that you can see now on the screen. When a crucified victim dies, he's completely exposed. in abject shame with the crimes inscribed above his head on a placard. The crucified victim loses their humanity. And I think in some ways our familiarity with crucifixion has sanitized us to this approach of thinking about crucifixion. It went beyond maximum pain. The goal of crucifixion was maximum shame, and humiliation. Fleming Rutledge, in her book, The Crucifixion, uh, if it, I, I highly recommend you purchasing this book and reading just chapter two. It's worth the purchase of this book. She says, crucifixion was specifically designed to be the ultimate insult to personal dignity. The last word in humiliating and dehumanizing treatment, degradation was the whole point. This criminal would have been viewed as subhuman. He wouldn't have even been afforded animal status. I mean, consider the the mental and the emotional and the spiritual uh, turmoil that he would have experienced. And through all of these mocking insults, Jesus himself degraded, himself humiliated, utters these words, truly I say to you. Jesus is the one who has the last words in this criminal's life. It's not Pilate. It's not the crowds. It's not the criminal's counterpart on the other side of Jesus. Jesus is the victim's gracious and just judge in this moment. And when we hear this word judge, most of the time we hear it in a negative sense. Someone is judgmental or the judge condemned someone to a life sentence. But judge can also have a positive sense to it the judge was just the judge was gracious note the irony here in this moment that jesus the one who was unjustly crucified is the one whose judgments truly mattered in the life of this criminal from the cross the nature of jesus authority is unveiled for all to see jesus judgments are the only ones that matter Now, if you've ever watched a TV series or you've read a book with a long and complicated plot, I should just mention, my wife and I, our routine is to watch Dateline. And so um, for those who are 65 plus in the room, we can have a a Dateline watching party uh, at some point. (laughs) If you've ever watched a TV series, though, uh, unlike us, or, or read a book with a long, complicated plot, you can see the benefit of going back and actually rewatching because you'll catch things that you might not have caught the first time around. So let's rewind our, to the gospel, in the Gospel of Luke back to the very beginning where we find Jesus in a synagogue at Nazareth. This is a picture of Nazareth, that, that dirt mound that you see right there in the middle would have been the kind of ancient core of biblical Nazareth where this synagogue would have been located. Now, traveling rabbis would have frequently visited synagogues on the Sabbath or Shabbat and they would have been invited to read a passage from the Torah scroll and, and then they would be invited to expound on the passage and give their understanding of it. Jesus is given the scroll of Isaiah, Luke chapter 4 says, and he unrolls it and he finds the place where this is written, Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. And he grounds his entire ministry in these verses. Now, in these verses, Isaiah 61, 1 to 2, Isaiah looked forward to a prophet figure who is going to bring restoration to Israel, a prophet figure who had unmatched authority. He was going to proclaim good news to the poor. He was going to bring liberty to the captives. He was going to bring recovery of sight to the blind. And Jesus announces that he is this long-awaited prophet figure with unmatched authority. Now, let's fast forward again to the end of the Gospel of Luke, where we encounter our passage this morning. And we see that Jesus is connected to another passage in Isaiah Isaiah chapter 52 through chapter 53, the, passage, the, the text that speaks about the suffering of this servant in Isaiah. Just as the servant is described as having done no violence in Isaiah 53, that there was no deceit in his mouth, this is how Jesus is described in the crucifixion scene. Multiple times, Jesus is declared innocent Consider that Pilate declares Jesus to be innocent. Herod finds Jesus innocent. The centurion declares Jesus to be innocent. And our criminal friend from the cross declares Jesus to be innocent. Now, by making references to both Isaiah 53 and to um, the, uh, uh, in, uh, the end in the crucifixion scene and to Isaiah 61, the, the, the text about the prophet in Isaiah, The author, uh, Luke, wants us to see here that the way that these events in Isaiah 61 come about is through the suffering of the servant, through the unmatched authority of the servant figure. So when Jesus declares to the criminal, truly I say to you, he is showing his authority as the righteous sufferer. The captive, the criminal, receives his freedom. These are the only words that mattered to this criminal from the cross, which leads to this point here: We can have hope in Jesus' authority. In those darkest moments of our own lives, when it feels like evil is getting the upper hand, we can have confidence in Jesus' authority. I heard the story of a seminary student. Uh, his name was Frank, and he was shadowing a hospital chaplain. And they visited a woman whose son had recently died because of a car accident. And the mother kept asking, as any mother would, why did God do this to me? Why did God do this to me? And trying to offer a word of comfort, the chaplain told her, God did not have anything to do with your son's death. It's not uncommon for us to hear a platitude like this. But then the woman responds, Don't take away the only hope that I have. Cameron Cole, in his book, Therefore I Have Hope, about this incident, he says this, Behind the grieving mother's remark lies the hope that the sovereignty of God enables. If God is not fully sovereign in your suffering, then you cannot trust that he is fully in control of your healing and recovery. If God's hands are tied when the worst enters your life, then maybe his powers are also limited in helping you. What is he saying here? He's saying that when we say things like, God did not have anything to do with my son's death, our son's death, we're saying that ultimately he's not in control of those moments. And if he's not in control, then he's limited in the help that he can provide in these moments. Now, why do we say things like that? Why do we say God did not have anything to do with uh, fill in the blank in terms of the event? I think it's because we want to protect our image of God in those moments by distancing him from our painful situations that we experience. But at the cross, we see that Jesus is not only present in this criminal's life, he's completely authoritative in this criminal's life. The cross of Jesus does not minimize our grief and it does not give us a thin answer as to why we experience pain and suffering. At the cross, we encounter the extraordinary hope of Jesus that he is present and authoritative in the midst of our pain and our suffering. The cross gives us the hope that Jesus is the one who has the final word in our life, whatever we experience. In Jesus at the cross, we encounter him as the just and gracious judge in the world's darkest moment. The second thing that we see in this passage is that Jesus is the friend of the sinner. I don't think it's insignificant that we find Jesus speaking to a crucified criminal when he says, "...truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise." He's humanizing the dehumanized here. He's treating the undignified criminal with love. Now, one of the things that is unique to Luke's gospel is the dialogue that these two two criminals have on the cross. We don't find it in any other uh, of the three gospels. One of the criminals is mocking Jesus in his final moments. But the other criminal acknowledges Jesus' identity with a posture of humility. Look at verses 40 to 42. In response to this criminal who is mocking Jesus, the other criminal says, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? We indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Notice in these verses that the criminal fears God and recognizes that he is receiving the just reward for his crimes. But he also recognizes the innocence of Jesus. Now, throughout his ministry, Jesus was identified as a friend of tax collectors and sinners. In one instance, Jesus was confronted by the religious leaders. And they asked him, why are you eating with tax collectors? Why are you eating with sinners? In an honor-shame culture, it would have not been good for your social capital, to eat with such people. And that's why the religious leaders are asking, why are you doing this, Jesus? You're not helping your cause. And Jesus responds here, Luke chapter 5, verses 31 to 32. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus is willing to bring dishonor upon himself by associating with those on the fringes, those who are outcasts, those who recognize that they have a need for a Savior. The ultimate identification, of course, is being crucified with one of the criminals. Which leads to the second application. We can have hope in Jesus' incarnation. Jesus' crucifixion, in the same manner as these two thieves, shows us that we can have hope in the reality that Jesus, the Son of God, took on flesh and became like us. This is a profound and amazing truth that he knows every aspect of the human experience and yet was without sin. He knows our sorrows. He knows our suffering. Jesus knows our pain. And I think one indicator that we have experienced the hope of the incarnation, that Jesus has become like us, is that we are willing to enter into the pain and brokenness of this world. Historians suggest that one of the main reasons that Christianity grew uh, so quickly in the first centuries is because of the care the church had for those who were on the fringes of society. The Roman world experienced a number of plagues early on and it was the Christians who would head into the city and really intentionally putting themselves in harm's way to care for those who were in need. And, And many Christians actually came down with disease and died because of their Commitment to those who are in need. When I was a pastor at at Calvary, we had a missionary partner in Ukraine. And in the earliest days of the war, our partner sent us a, a prayer letter asking for prayer. But they also sent a video of their church in the church van heading in the opposite direction of the flow of traffic heading out of the city. They were literally the only ones on the other side of the road heading into harm's way to care for those who are in need. The hope of the incarnation that Jesus identifies with us sends us against the cultural flow of traffic. And if I can be honest with you, this was challenging to me because if I was in this situation, like our Ukrainian partners, for instance, my, my fear is that I'd be on the other side of the road fleeing with that long line of traffic, not in the church van heading against the flow. I'm convinced That in my own life, there are too many things that I love more than Jesus, the cares of this world, the pleasures that this world offers. But when we look at the incarnation of Jesus, we're reminded that Jesus became like us in the way that we needed and that propels us to those who are in need. But another indicator that we've experienced the hope of the incarnation is that we're willing to be accused of the same things Jesus was accused of I was captivated this past week by uh, Rosaria Butterfield's story. I know many of you have probably read her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. In this book, she describes her story of being a lesbian feminist professor at Syracuse. And she published an op-ed piece in the uh, Syracuse Post Standard, Raging Against Promise Keepers, a Christian men's movement. And she received, in response to this article, a, a letter from Pastor Ken... Smith and his wife, Floy. Pastor Ken and his wife invited uh, Rosaria to their home. And she made her way to their house thinking, well, this is going to be really uh, helpful as I further my research on why Christians have it so wrong. But as the story unfolds, she doesn't find a sparring partner in Pastor Ken when she's at their home. Instead, she finds a, a meal she finds hospitality, she finds love. And after two years of this patient pursuit of Ken and his wife, Rosaria ends up knowing that Jesus was who he says he is. Jesus is who he says he is. I, um, I think this is a great example of someone who understands the incarnation of Jesus, Pastor Ken and his wife. I think it's opposite of the way that the many Christians today, we see them displaying um, their discipleship. Because Rosaria is one of those folks that many of us would, would, would fear and want a, to avoid. And why is that the case? Because I think oftentimes we fear what our own tribe might say about us if we start associating with people who are not in our tribe. We, we let our own tribe have the final word in our, in our lives instead of letting Jesus have the final word. In our life. But if Jesus was identified as a friend of sinners, if Jesus was crucified with criminals, then his word about us is the only word that actually matters. If we're finding hope in Jesus' incarnation, he propels us to those who are far. And finally, we see that Jesus is the God of the forgotten. Jesus is not just like us in the incarnation, he's also radically unlike us. In the way that we need him to be. He's the divine son of God. And we see this in the last part of this statement. You will be with me in paradise. Now, it appears that this criminal, to some extent, recognized who Jesus was. Probably not a full grasp, but to some extent recognized. When he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He understands Jesus as some type of a king to remember or to ask for deli- to ask someone to remember you as a way of asking for deliverance. And I think there's perhaps a little bit of a double meaning here. Uh, Fleming Rutledge, in her book again, she notes that crucifixion was designed to erase the memory of its victims as though they had never existed. That was the point. Because to speak the very name of the crucified victim becomes taboo. It's not something you want to do. And so they're effectively... Eliminated from not just society, they're eliminated from memory, the crucified victim. And so this crucified victim, when he's saying, remember me when you come into your kingdom, it's, it's asking Jesus to, to, to go against what crucifixion was all about. The word that Jesus uses for paradise here, when he says, truly you will be with me today in paradise, is used a few different times in the Old Testament. In one Instance, it's used in Genesis 2, chapter 8, where it's used of the word garden. And the Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man he had formed. It's also used in Isaiah 51, 3, which speaks about the restoration of God's people. For the Lord comforts Zion, he comforts all her waste places, makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the paradise of the Lord. The bookends of the Bible, Genesis and Revelation, speak about a garden or God's presence. And one of the major themes that we see throughout the Bible is the restoration of Eden, the restoration of God dwelling with his people. This is why it's significant that this criminal would be with Jesus in Eden, in paradise. Yes, we await for the fullness of God's kingdom to come, but there's a sense in which we get to experience God's kingdom now, when we profess faith in Jesus. Which leads to the last point here. We can have hope in Jesus' promise. I recently did a Google search. What is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of life? Of course, you get a lot of ideas that come up about setting life goals, finding meaning in relationships or spirituality. And then I asked Alexa, what is the purpose of life? I encourage you to go home and do it. Uh, And she gave me some quote from Eleanor Roosevelt. But if we really want the answer to what is the purpose of life, and we ask other humans, we're just pooling our ignorance. We need someone who is both like and unlike us to tell us. We can have hope in Jesus' promise of life with him that he tells this criminal. You see, this is the goal of our existence, to be with Jesus and to become like Jesus. And if to be with Christ is the goal of life, then there is no situation that we face, no trial that we experience where we cannot have abundant hope, because we can be confident that we will be with Jesus both now and forever. I want to end with Philippians 3:8 because I think Paul's words in this passage speak directly to this idea that being with Jesus is the goal of life. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. When Paul refers to rubbish, he's speaking of trash. He's speaking of animal dung, things that we don't want to have any association with. And as re- when I was reflecting on this, the garbage truck went by my house and I was thinking of the fact that we actually pay, we pay people to take away our trash, to take away our garbage. And I'm grateful for those people. And so in some sense, Paul is saying, everything else is less than nothing. It's something that we don't want any association with in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. And so my prayer for all of us is this, that like this criminal on the cross, we would recognize that knowing Jesus is greater than anything else this world can offer. That Jesus has the last word in our lives. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.